Uh, so it's good to be with you, and I am excited to continue our series in the Epistles of John. Today we are in 1 John chapter 2. It took us a couple of weeks to get through 1 John chapter 1, and if you are our guest or this is your first time with us in this series, we're doing something a little different, and our goal uh, throughout the epistles of John is not just that we cover the material, but that we are able to talk through it together. Whenever we look at patterns of the church, especially the early church, um, one of the things that happened in the teaching in the synagogue and in the temples uh, was that they would actually talk back, uh, not talk back like disagree, although you have the freedom to do that. Uh, but they would just, it was, learning was a group experience. Now, many of you are in small groups. This is the way we primarily do small groups uh, whenever we do get together. Um, so our goal here is not just to be one big small group. And in all honesty, this is probably, I'm not sure that if we were any bigger, we could continue to do this in this way. Because, uh, you know, I think we're small enough, we can make this work on Sunday mornings. Um, much bigger, and it would be hard to do that. Uh, but our goal is that we're going to go through this together, um, and that if you have questions, stop and ask. I've got some questions I will ask you that I want you to give me feedback. And then if you have something you'd like to say, you have the opportunity to do that. I would just ask you to be respectful. And if you have, some, if you have something other than a question, and you just want to say something, please be sure you have scripture to back up what you're going to say. Uh, so as we go through this, I don't know how far we're going to get. It took us two weeks to get through 10 verses of chapter one and chapter two is quite a bit longer. We're not going to probably get, we're not going to get through the whole chapter. Um, but I'm hoping that we can get through most of it. Uh, this is a, this is a great chapter to continue what John's already been saying and his primary, um, illustration of what it looks like to walk with Christ is walking in the light. Remember? Um, He spent some time talking about light and darkness, and so he is going to continue that conversation. We ended very quickly last week, and his last few thoughts of chapter 1 are simply saying, um, if you say that you have no sin, you're lying, or if you claim to follow Jesus and you're willingly choosing to sin, then you are not following Jesus. And he picks that thought up. So today is going to be a rip-roaring um, conversation about sin, and I know you all are very excited about it. So what we hope to do is cover everyone's sin that's here today in detail. Um, we're going to point it out and put a big sticker on you that, that says, this is your sin. No, we're not going to do that. Uh, but I do want us to walk through this, and I, I want us to tread carefully, uh, because one of the things that we'll, we're going to find, one of the things that we can do when we begin to focus on sin is we can move very quickly into a, a, the direction of shame. And we're going to spend some time talking about that this morning. I want us to be careful to remember what John is doing throughout this epistle. John is leading people to a place of freedom and experiencing what Christ intended for them. A place of joy, a place of freedom, a place of love. And so when we talk about sin, our goal is not to let everyone know how bad we are. Uh, Scripture is very clear on what that looks like for us. But instead, what we want to look at is what John is trying to say in overcoming sin and what it takes to do that. So I've got quite a bit to go through with you. We're not going to read the whole chapter like we have been the last couple of weeks just because it's so long. Um, But we are going to begin with the first six verses. We're going to try to make it all the way to... Oh, I have a lot of notes. So we're going to try to make it all the way to verse 17 today. And that's actually ambitious. (laughs) That's ambitious today, but we're going to try to do that. But let's begin with the first six verses and let's continue what we've been doing the last couple of weeks. Um, Let's just stand and read the first six verses together. If you haven't read yet, uh, if you haven't read 1 John chapter 2, hang in with us. That'll be okay. We're going to read it right now. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Thank you. You can be seated. So as I go through these first six verses, we could literally hang out for the next few weeks just in these first six verses. Because John is doing a number of things here. He is giving us a, a little bit of an instruction in doctrine and theology. He's also encouraging. He's also calling us to a way of life, calling us to action. There's a lot of things happening in just these six verses. And as we look at them, he's going to build on that throughout this epistle. This itself is being built on what he's already talked about in chapter 1. So as we go through here, a couple of things that stand out to me is that we have an advocate for the Father. We've already said there are different reasons for which John is writing this epistle. And there are, there are five reasons we see throughout the epistle of John. We see one of them right here in, chapter, in verse 1, chapter 2. I am writing these things so that you may not sin. And so his goal is to instruct in this place, in this part of the epistle, to instruct in holiness. Holiness is that characteristic of God that is without fault, that is without blemish, that is righteous, that is whole. And we are called to mimic that and to receive that. And we have a level of holiness only because of what Christ did for us on the cross. But we are also called to mimic his holiness. Now, there's a long conversation we could have behind this, which is how do we define holiness for everybody as we look at sin? What is sin for everybody? Because not everyone agrees that the same action is sin for everyone. You need to be able to have a biblical reason for your understanding of sin in any way. If there's a particular thing that you think is sin and someone else doesn't, we will each individually stand before Christ and we will each individually answer for how we've lived and how we've interpreted his word. If we stand before Christ and we say, well, that's just kind of what I thought, or that's what a lot of people around me thought, and so I just kind of accepted it, we're not going to have much evidence to demonstrate that we were trying to follow what is God's intent for us. But if you can stand and say, this is what you said in your word, this is why I believe this, that's all we're going to say about trying to nail down everyone's specific sin of what is sin. That's a longer conversation for another time. We are concerned today with the overall effects of sin, how do we deal with it, and how do we walk in addition. So he's writing these sayings because he sees that sin is a problem, not just before you receive Christ, but after you receive Christ as well. He's not saying that you are going to have to now never sin if you're going to be acceptable to God. What he's saying is how you live your life once you do know Christ does matter. And what he's encouraging the churches to do that he's been a part of in this part of Turkey, he is encouraging them, do not return to the behaviors that you had before. Be changed. But he goes on and he's demonstrating the gospel. Even in this time, he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, what is an advocate? Somebody give me a definition of an advocate. What does that mean to you? Somebody that will fight for you. That's a good, good definition. Anybody else? Definition of advocate. A mediator. Okay, that's good. Anybody else? Someone who speaks on the behalf of others. Now, the very fact that Jesus is... Those are all great definitions of what an advocate is. The very fact that Jesus is an advocate for us means that we need to have an advocate, right? With who? Who is he our advocate with? With the Father. Why? Because we're sinful. Because we need it. Why does Jesus need to be our advocate? Because God, I mean, the Father is holy, so he can't be in the presence of sin to end in the wages of sin or death. So Jesus took the punishment for sin. Okay. So when the Father looks at us, all he sees is Jesus Christ. God is holy, 
God expects us, if we're going to be part of His family, in His presence, with Him eternally, we must be holy as well. I think we all have established we can't do that on our own. I can't. If you feel like you can do it on your own, we need to have a talk later, right? We need an advocate. We need an advocate with the Father. The Father is called many different things, but one of His attributes and one of His roles is also that of judge. He is going to judge the world. Now, we don't like that language. We stay away from that kind of language as much as we can. We like the gospel to be about love and relief and freedom. But there is a, a part of the gospel that says we are headed for judgment. We need somebody on our behalf to speak for us. And that advocate for us is Jesus. Now, when we look at what is the original meaning of advocate, when we look at it, when it's written in John's con- context and what he's saying, literally means to call to one side. And it's the idea of an attorney. Someone who's going to be called to be alongside of you, to speak on your behalf, to speak for you, and to intercede for you in a time of judgment. That is what Jesus is doing for us. Now, he goes on saying not only do we have an advocate, but he goes on and he says he is the propitiation for our sins. So when we look through Scripture, Scripture is pretty clear that we do need this advocate. In Romans 6.23 it says, For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This covers all of us, every one of us, the very best of us, the very worst of us. We are all in this same place in need of an advocate. And there is no way we can live life without needing the advocate. So how does Jesus advocate for us? Now, I don't really know what that judgment's going to look like. Scripture speaks of two types of judgment. For those who are following Christ and for those who aren't. We both are still going to go through some level of judgment, although the penalty for one has already been paid. So we look forward to the time when we get to stand there. Jesus will be our advocate. He will take over. And because of his blood, because of his death, his burial and resurrection, that we believe in him, that we confess him, and that we follow him, he overcomes that judgment for us. The word propitiation, is we see that a couple of times in the New Testament. And it literally means to atone for or to appease. And just as Renee has mentioned, he is atoning for our sin. He is appeasing God because we are not holy, righteous, good enough to be in God's presence without Christ. So whenever you see that word propitiation, it's not a whole lot of fun to say. I don't know who came up with that word, but that's what it means. So when you run across it and you just run through it, remember that it literally means he is atoning for you. And he is appeasing you. When I was growing up, my sister used to like to tell my mom and dad everything I did wrong. I know you all probably didn't have a sister like that. We healed our relationship, you know, a couple of years ago. Now, we've had a great relationship. And uh, she very much made wanted to make sure that I atoned for all my sins. Now, I won't, say, I won't name any names in our family, but we have some, someone in particular who likes to make sure the rest of the siblings atone for their sins and make sure to let Deidre and I know every time they do something they're not supposed to do. Jesus is that place that atones for us. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isaiah 53, 5 goes on to say, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. This is an amazing picture of Jesus that is not only here with us and for us, but has stepped in between the judgment due us. Now let me ask you this. Knowing that about Jesus, maybe this is rhetorical, maybe not. 
knowing this about Jesus, when you are in the midst of what you know to be either habitual or continual sin, or even if it's not habitual or continual, do, are you driven towards Christ or away from Him in that moment? When you are in the midst, you have, it has come to your attention. You are faced with the reality that you have either, either perpetuated or are perpetuating some sin. Does it drive you towards Jesus or away? That's a question we each have to ask ourselves. I find a lot of times people are driven away from Jesus. It's the response of Adam and Eve in the garden. Whenever they sin and then God is walking in the garden, they hid themselves. That's the default position that we often take. That's the default position humanity has always taken. And yet when we see Jesus in this incredible position of advocate, attorney, taking our punishment for us, it's not just that he's our attorney and he gets us off. He's our attorney, we're found guilty, and he goes to jail for us. He is standing in that place for us. And yet our default position is often to step away from Jesus. One of the things that I've learned over time, and is anyone in here familiar with the Enneagram? You've got any Enneagram followers in here? Yes, those who are, raise their hands proudly. I find that either people don't know anything about it, absolutely love it, or absolutely hate it. On the Enneagram, I'm what you call an Enneagram type one. What other types do we have in here? Those of you who raise your hand. We've got a two, we got a... You got a seven and a what? Six. Six. Okay, I'm a one. Now, the way the Enneagram works, it's it's not a Christian thing. You're not going to find it in Scripture. It's and not real sure where it's it originated. It's very old, but in recent years has kind of had a, a new life breathed into it. And the Enneagram is not quite a personality profile, but it is pretty close. The Enneagram breaks down every person into nine basic types. And that your default position in life goes back to nine basic types. Now, I don't agree with everything in the Enneagram, but there are, there is basically in each type some kind of hurtful experience that caused you to move in some position. Now, for each one of those types, one of the things I love about the Enneagram is that it talks about how you can live your life when you are healthy and whole. You're living your true self who God created you to be. And then there's the false self. It's the person that you default to when you're not healthy, when things are not going well. You're not living the, the life that Christ created you to live. You, you have kind of these two binary places. Now, I'm an Enneagram type one, which means on my best day, it's, de- it's defined as a reformer. It's one of the reasons we stepped out to start a church for people that didn't go to church. It's one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about seeing the church come together in unity. It's one of the reasons that I'm so interested in being a part of the racial conversation that's in Chattanooga. It's one of the reasons we as a family got involved in the foster system. There is a part of me that sees status quo and I cannot just sit there and do nothing. Well, that's just, don't applaud for me. There's a whole bunch of ones out there. Some of you are ones too. It's just the way I'm driven. Now, when I'm not healthy, when I'm not doing well, the description of a type one is the perfectionist. Why are you laughing? It really is. It is. I know. I, so when I'm not doing well then that means that I'm driven to do everything just right. In fact, there's a part of me that is driven that I, in order for me to be loved and for me to be valued, I have to be perfect for others. Now, one of the things I've learned as a follower of Jesus is to filter many of the thoughts that go through my head through his word, which has radically changed the way I see the world. That's why scripture, time in scripture is so crucial. It creates a filter for all the voices that go in your head. And I do have voices in my head. Uh, so do you. Don't judge me. But the voice in my head and the voice in every person who is a type one on the Enneagram is a very critical internal voice telling you you're not doing good enough. You're not doing enough. You need to do better. Everything's going bad, and it's all your fault. 
Nobody's clapping for that, all right? Okay. Now, that is when you're operating out of the very worst parts of this personality type. Now, what this has taught me over time and why I am telling you all this now in a discussion of sin is because there are two primary motivating forces in the world that will move and transform you more than anything else in the world apart from God and the Holy Spirit. Those two things are love and shame. There, are, there is nothing in this world that will transform you more thoroughly or quickly outside of God and the Holy Spirit than those two realities in life. So one of the things that I can do if I'm not operating at my best, and some of the things that would cause me not to operate at my best is if I had hung out at the lock-in. My kids wanted, are you coming to the lock-in? No, <laughs> I won't be there. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> some of the things that uh, can contribute to it is if I'm not spending time with God regularly. Again, why it's so important that we're spending time speaking with, talking with, praying with, receiving God's word through his word and through prayer. That's one of the reasons we have to be spending time with him. Because when I'm not, I begin to default to the critical interior voice that says, you're not good enough. Now, some of you, you default to this. You may or may not be a type one, but you default to shame thinking immediately. You get up in the morning. Oh, I overslept. I can't believe I overslept. You go and look in the mirror. Oh, I shouldn't have eaten what I ate last night. You know, oh, I don't know how I'm going to do at work today. Oh, I don't even want to go today. Oh, and you just, a flood of negative thoughts begin to come into your mind about how terrible you are and how terrible the things that you're involved in are. It will cause you to interpret neutral events very negatively. It will certainly kill the joy out of positive events that are going on in your life. So I share all this, and don't feel bad for me. This is what everyone struggles with, and the very same things that drive reform will drive this not lived out in a healthy way. Every one of the personality types will will function that way. Your true self, positive. Your false self, negative. But they're different for every person. One of the things I have to learn is that not everybody has an inner critical voice. And so sometimes if I'm not living in a place of grace and understanding Jesus as my and your advocate, I can easily come to the place and say, why did you do that? You shouldn't have done that. That's bad. Don't do that. And part of understanding what God is doing and what the Holy Spirit is doing within me and wants to do within us is recognizing there is a place of what Jesus is offering that is not supposed to lead us to shame. And yet when we have sin, whether it be habitual or continual, and we have the opportunity to either go towards Christ or away from him, shame leads us away. I will tell you that this is not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is not to bring guilt and shame. The point of the gospel is to bring freedom, to bring joy, to bring peace, and to bring love. As a church, we can struggle with this whole concept of sin, and we can and put, and put it on people in one of two ways. John chooses the way of love, although he gives us a very clear understanding of what sin is. We can choose the way of shame, and the way of shame is, you are bad. I mean, I don't even, I'm not even sure Jesus can fix you. I mean, you're bad. And there are people that are in churches every week in which they are told, you are bad. This is not the way of Jesus. So one of the things we have to be careful as we continue this conversation through 1 John chapter 2 is that we have to fall on the side of freedom and love rather than camping out in shame. The result of sin is always going to be shame. Sin is always going to bring shame. One of the reasons that Paul says, you, listen, break free from the chains of sin and don't go back is because sin always leads you to a place of shame. And this is one of the reasons that Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's encapsulated in the message of love. 
Now, I've told you there are two themes in First John chapter, or first, first, or the epistle to John, First, Second, and Third John. There are two primary themes, and it is they are the themes of grace and truth, working itself out in love. So we have to understand that that's what he's saying. Okay, let's get back to our notes. My last question, does knowing that Jesus is your advocate encourage you to seek him when you sin? And I guess we've already, this party passed this note. The two most powerful and transforming forces in the world other than God is love and shame. Love pushes us to Christ. Shame pushes us away from Christ. Now, let me ask you this based on those first few verses that we've already read. What would John say about those who choose to habitually sin and disobey God? What would John say based on those verses that we've already read? They don't know him. What else? They're a liar. What else? The truth's not in them. And I would, I would go on to say, we are not abiding in him. We are not walking with him. Yes. So that is what John would say about those things. You cannot abide in Christ and choose to habitually sin and disobey God. Let me ask you this. Does anyone in here sin? Is there a sinner among us? Yeah, yeah right, right. Okay. Those who didn't raise their hand, we know what your sin is. All right. Interestingly... In the area of sin, one of the ways that we describe people that are conscientious in their walk with Christ and they're trying to be holy is we often equate their character as one of integrity. Integrity, in the way that we typically use the word today, is someone who does, in general, the right thing even when no one is looking. Integrity is huge. Employers today are looking for someone. They will hire you even if you are not fully skilled or fully trained, if you have demonstrated integrity, because it is, there's a massive leak of integrity within our culture today. Showing up for work on time. Doing your job while at work. You know, not taking stuff uh, that doesn't belong to you. You know, so integrity is a huge thing. The Latin word for integrity, though, literally means wholeness. You are complete. So that changes a bit of the understanding of what integrity is. It's not just do the right thing. It is the state of being whole or complete. It's where we get the word integrated. Things are integrated. And for our IT buffs in the room, you love and hate the word integration, right? Because so many times the things that are supposed to be integrated become what? Disintegrated. So in other words, to be integrated means to be whole. To to disintegrate is to not be whole. It's where we get the word disintegrate. You begin to disintegrate when you are no longer whole. So when we began to look at this idea of sin and what does it look like to follow Jesus, it is not so simple as many people put it as, this is what God wants, you better give God what he wants. I will tell you there is a piece of that that is absolutely true, but there is a piece of it that God has not just said, you know what, let's, let's do this. Let's tell them to never lie. That will be awesome. And then let's watch and I really think there are people that think that's how God operates. I think that's how people think he operates. But instead, God sees what makes us whole, what he intended from the very beginning whenever he created us in the garden, and what happened when Adam and Eve ate from the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat and sin entered into humanity. It was much more than just now God is mad and we're not going to make it to heaven. But instead, he saw within us that what was integrated, what was whole, what was complete, has now become less than whole, 
less than complete. James, when he talks about bad things in life actually lead to perfection within your life, is not talking to leading to a place without fault or error. He's talking about leading to a place back of wholeness and completion, back to integrity. And so within the church, we may say something to the effect of, well, you ought to do what is right. You ought to be a person of integrity. What we're literally saying, if we know what we're saying, we should be whole with Christ. And anything less than that leads to disintegration. We begin to disintegrate. And you know how that feels. You know how that feels. So what John is saying here, what he's moving us to is not simply, you know what? Do better. Do you want to discourage somebody in their faith? Say, do better. Because most of the time, we're doing the best we can. And for someone to say do better tells us that we'll never get there. One of the realities about Christ as our advocate is that we can't do better enough. And without Jesus standing in the gap for us, we have no hope. So will we move towards him or we move away from him? I say all this to say that you cannot willfully continue in sin and be whole. You cannot willfully continue in sin and be whole. Now, if we understand sin in this way, it also changes the way we talk with people. Because when we go to people and we want them to know how bad they are and how bad their sin is, then we lead them to a place of shame. We see someone and we go, ah, I get it. They are not whole. Then that moves our response to one of compassion and grace, not of judgment and shame. They're not whole. When we look in the mirror and we see our own sin, we recognize, I'm not whole. And then when we say, I want to stamp out sin in my life, we're not saying, I just want to be perfect, where I can default to very easily with my personality type. Instead, what we're saying is, I want to seek wholeness. And that's what we're doing when we fight to overcome sin within our lives. When we go back to verse 1, John has an answer for this. What does John say we should do if we are either habitually or just caught in sin? He's got an answer for that. What is it in, in verse 1, somebody? Oh, we've got to pull it back out. Verse 1. Yeah, go to, go to Christ, surrender it. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Go to the advocate. So even what John is saying, and he's laying out the reality of what it means to be whole versus what it means to be broken or shattered, what he's saying is there is still hope for everyone. There is hope for everyone that is reading this and he has, wants to have hope for everyone within these churches. And the reason he's writing this is because there are some who are saying, sin's not a problem anymore. It doesn't, you can do whatever you want to do now. It's no big deal. And so John is trying to answer that without going to the place of being legalistic, of invoking shame, of just raising a standard that you'll never yourself be able to meet. Instead, he's trying to still demonstrate that there's freedom, there is a place, but we cannot, we should not believe that sin is not a problem. What we can also do is fall into the place where my efforts to fight sin makes me better or more loved, more acceptable to God. And if we do that, then we also change the gospel because we are not saved by avoiding sin. Can somebody say amen? amen? All right. We cannot be saved by avoiding sin. If you want to see a sad story, watch someone's life who's trying to be approved before God by avoiding sin. It is a terrible hamster wheel to be on. 
We are not saved by avoiding sin. This conversation also came up that we just need to try harder if we want to be saved. And this is what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace through faith, not of our own ability to avoid sin, because had we been able to, there would have been no reason for an advocate in Jesus. We had a system in place. Just got to repent. You got to you got to you know do the right sacrifices at the right time, and then just don't ever sin again. There was a system in place for that. It didn't work. It wasn't enough for us. And Paul is emphasizing that over and over again. We are we are also though not saved by grace if our lives do not demonstrate any real change. Now let me back up before you mutiny on me. We are not saved by grace if our lives do not demonstrate any real change. Now how can I say, well, you're not saved by grace? Well, certainly I'm not saying that God is uh, withholding His grace or that His grace is not sufficient. I do not mean that in any other way. But that problem also began to rise up around the early church. And that led James, the brother of John, to say this in chapter 2, verse 18 of James. Someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. In other words, I don't need to do anything. I don't need to, to fight sin. I don't need to serve others. I don't need to care for the poor. I don't have to do any of that stuff because I have faith. And Paul says, I'm saved by grace through faith. And so that led James. And if you'll remember, Peter, James, and John, Paul described them as the three pillars of the early church. These are the big thinkers in the early church. He says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, if there is no change evident in a person's life and how they're living their life, they have not experienced Christ. Now, this is hard for us. Because this leads us to where it has always led the church, and that is to come up with some litmus test for who is a real believer. When I grew up, we had the offering envelopes that you better bring an offering envelope to church because that was one of the tests. And on that offering envelope, for efficiency's sake, you could check off all the other tests. Well, did I come to church today? Well, I brought my offering envelope, got that one covered. Did I read my Bible? Did I bring my Bible? You know, it had all these things you had to do for litmus tests to being changed. And that is a dangerous place for us to go because it puts us in a place of God determining the faith of someone else. We are never said to do that. And even, even Jesus said in the parable of the wheat and the tares, listen, there are going, there's going to be wheat, the true believers within the church. And then there's going to be the tares, the weeds in which they don't actually believe, but they live among the believers and act as if they are a believer. Whenever they are growing up, you can't tell the difference. So if you try to pull the tares out, you'll pull out the wheat Two, instead, let them stay and grow together. And in the end, God is going to determine who the wheat and the tares are, not us. But we're tempted to get there. Sometimes we're tempted for good reason. I mean, I want you to know. I don't want you to get in front of Jesus and think you're good and you're not. But we have to be careful because it has often led the church to become incredibly judgmental and to put tests on people that God himself doesn't put on people. But how do we reconcile that with people that are doing things that are obviously against Scripture but say they're Christians? So the question was, so how do you reconcile that with people who say they're Christians and they're not living as Christians? Which is a very good point. And yet... I would say that you answer that, uh, this may not be a great answer for it, but I would answer that by saying what you're 
you're asking is, is what should we do about them? And really, whenever we read through Scripture, it's not that we do something about them as much as we do something about their witness. So, you know, Scripture goes so far as to say, if a person continues in known sin and they are unrepentant, which is different, they're unrepentant, then you're to push them out of the church. Make, make them leave the church. And, and give them over to the desires that they have to sin without repentance. But the purpose of that was not to punish. The purpose of that was to demonstrate a removal from the presence of God that would hopefully lead them to a place of repentance because the life of the community of the church at that time was so vital that you missed it. And you realized, I am choosing to continue in sin in a way that separates me from God and from the church. Now, how do we reconcile that with we're not supposed to come up with litmus tests? So... I mean, that's a tough, that's a tough question. Um, because in our society, you're constantly being faced with this, well, thou shalt not judge. Right, right. You, you, can't, you can't say anything bad about anybody, no matter how they behave, and claim to be Right, right. I'm trying to think about how, to, how I want to answer it and sound like I know what I'm talking about. Gene? Uh, <laughs> I'll come back to you because I got, I got called out for not calling on you last week. So I'll come back to you. Gene? Mm. The Holy Spirit guiding? Possibly. Yeah, I, I, definitely a part of it is relying on the Holy Spirit. Um, some of it some of it likely depends on what sins are most evident and which sins are not as evident. Um, you're spending way too much time with your neighbor's wife. Okay, that becomes probably evident. Um, you've got an immense amount of pride within your life. While that can be evident, that can also be very hidden in which we could create tests for that to try to root out who is or who isn't. But. I was just going to say, kind of follow up with what Scott was saying. We were talking about you know, the, trying to you know, implement the litmus test. The, the effort there, while there's some good intention behind that, is like we're trying to assess you know, everything about, is, is everything about you on the straight and narrow, so to speak? But mm-hmm. you know, there, that lacks the relational component that we really strive for in discipleship. And mm-hmm. A lot of times, you know, when, we, when we see something in a brother or sister that's unhealthy, try to walk alongside them yeah. and, and, and identify that with them and try to walk through it. And so it's it's trying to achieve, I think, the same thing, but in a different kind of way, and in a way that's loving and that still has love and truth right. as equal components to it. Yeah, okay. okay good. Paul? What's the, uh, I'm just really struggling. We've, we've kind of talked about sin. The, the definition that you kind of provided was out of Matthew, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Yeah, well, I, I would, so I, here's where I would leave it. Here's where I would leave and try to d- differentiate. There is a difference in willful, willfully sinning because I want to do it. Now, what you're kind of, what you're kind of skirting around is, well, then what are those things? What are the things you are supposed to do and not supposed to do? And that is a very sticky question, depending on who you ask, because there are some things that were considered sins that are no longer considered sins. And those are primarily 
things like uh, like eating meat. That is one. Eating anything, eating any portion of a hoofed animal, which would have been completely against the law. And we see that in Peter's dream. Whenever Cornelius reaches out to him, um, we see that now the way you know you don't have to wear um, a tallet in order to be faithful to God. You don't have to let your hair grow in order to do that because those were all symbols that of devotion. The symbols of devotion are no longer outward in the way that we say we prove. Tattoo is another thing where, oh, if you have a tattoo, they're evil. They're evil. God hates tattoos. But literally, in the context, the tattoo that is being mentioned is one that demonstrates allegiance to a false god, not the fact that you have a tattoo on there. Now, if you ask my mother, she would say, no, tattoos are just bad all the way around, and she'll give you a list, one of which is you won't ever know if you have skin cancer if you have a tattoo. She's told me that. So, you know, she may be watching today. I may be in trouble later, and she's going to say, you darn tootin', that's right. But, you know, a lot of those things, a lot of those things are meant to demonstrate where is our heart truly at our diet, how we dress, were things that Jesus abolished for sure. The rest in which Jesus says, uh, I'm not here to, to, um, to you know, destroy the law. I'm just here to fulfill it, show you what it looks like. And then John, I believe John will actually say later in, the, in 1 John, he will say some sins lead to death. And some sins don't lead to death. That will be a fun conversation, by the way, when we get there. Because he's crystal muddy right there. And, um, but, that is, but we are called regularly to call out false teachers. We are regularly to call out people that would demonstrate and say, yes, God is okay with me um, following him fully and sleeping with my neighbor's wife. He's totally okay with that. And that would likely be one of the scenarios in which the Old Testament law would still be applicable, um, that they would call out and say, no, you cannot remain in fellowship and say this because that completely goes against um, all of his language that says repent from those things. But that's still, I would say, an incomplete answer for a very complex question. Yeah. Right. But judging those inside the church. And, um, sorry, I'm just going to stand up. Yeah. Um, I think that's one area where we fail because we attempt to judge those outside the church and we have no place for that. They have different values and different perspectives. And that's part of the damage that we as the church do to put up a barrier. Yeah. I think one of the differences is when we attempt to quote unquote judge someone within the church. It's not as much of a condemnation as much as like restoration and, and care. Right, right. And if we approach them, whether we know or don't know what the situation is in their life, if the Holy Spirit is working within them, our approach, if done appropriately in a loving manner, would hopefully allow the Holy Spirit to open that door for restoration. Right, right, right. So I think there is definitely a place in which we do that. In fact, there's been times in my life where I think people have looked and said, you're not doing what you need to do. Mm-hmm. But out of whatever fear, they didn't speak truth into my life, and they let me lead a path of sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, looking back on that, I'm like, I really wish somebody had had the courage, because I was too ashamed yeah. to admit what was going on in my life at the time. But had somebody opened the door for me to be vulnerable with them, I probably would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we go back to our understanding of integrity being wholeness and disintegrity being a lack of wholeness, the judgment, that is a great point. We are never called to judge people outside the church. How could we? We, the only difference between us and them is that we have seen and experienced and received Christ and they have not. But within the church, our goal, again, I think that's also a great differentiator, is not to condemn, but to lead to restoration. And instructions to push outside the church would be those who reject a willingness to be restored and instead choose to willingly stay 
in what was considered sin. But throughout, throughout the early church, whether you're talking pre-Constantine to the Reformation to today, there has never been a serious, um, there has never been given serious attention to say that the sins of the Old Testament don't matter. Everyone from the um, from the apostle, from Jesus to the apostles, the early church, things got muddy with Constantine. Constantine messed up a bunch. This is another conversation, but Constantine messed up a bunch of stuff because he became because here's a pagan, a pagan ruler saying everyone now needs to be Christian, while many would say he himself did not become a Christian until his deathbed, and actually mixed many of the influences of his pagan religion with Christianity that we still separate today. So, but throughout that, there's never been a serious effort to say the Old Testament law doesn't matter other than those things specifically mentioned by Peter. And, uh, but... um, but when we move into the place of condemnation, I would say that is what has changed maybe most recently for us. Many of us have experienced what it means to be condemned. The mindset, you've got to get cleaned up before you can come to Christ. You've got to get cleaned up before you can come to church. One of the reasons we started this church is because we would consistently bring in people who weren't cleaned up to our churches and people were really uncomfortable with that. Not everyone, but a lot were. And we felt like, well, you shouldn't have to get cleaned up to approach Christ because I didn't, I wasn't cleaned up when I approached Christ. So I, I would say there are definitely, this is a longer conversation that we need to continue another time. Um, but this is what John is saying. John is saying there is a way of following Christ and abiding in Christ that leads to wholeness and health. And that means that we must fight against sin. There's a push in our culture to deny all sin, to let you kind of do what you want. And if I love you, I'm going to let you do what you want because you're doing what you want. But we don't do that to the people we love. I mean, my kids, if they want to, you know, they want to go do drugs, I'm not going to say, well, if that's what you want, that's what I want you to have what you want. I'm not going to tell them to go do drugs, you know. When we love somebody, we look and we see the dangers of something and we say we warn them. My kids, most of them are now old enough that they can make, they're going to make their own decisions whether I know it or not. And so I'm not going to have any control over that. But I'm still going to influence in the way, and I'm not going to deny that they're my children when they make choices that I don't want them to make. So it's a, the area of, the area of sin, I, is, I don't think this was a muddy question in the early church, it's a very muddy question today because of the way we have abused judgment and expectation. The church, if we, we agree or not, the church has used shame in many ways. And that's one of the reasons the culture is so quickly departing from us is because we so readily jump into the tool of shame because we know that shame is a very powerful tool love is more powerful but you have to choose to love someone loving someone costs you something and shame costs you nothing it actually gives you something it feeds your ego so this area that john is trying to communicate i don't want to get too this is a good question But I don't want to get stuck too long here, and we're out of time anyways, but I don't want to be stuck on this because John would have just said, listen, don't get bogged down in the details. Just love. And as you love, love as Jesus would love. And Jesus would have called people out to say, that's not good. Like the woman um, at the well like the woman caught in adultery, like Peter who told him, you need to stay away from these people, or no, you don't need to give your life for this. I mean, there are very few places that Jesus calls someone Satan, and Peter's, you know, pretty much it. 
So, you know, don't get bogged down in this, these things. I do think that, Gene, you're, you are really on to, so when do we engage those moments? And part of this conversation it also is a deeper conversation how the church is supposed to work and how, the church, how church tends to work. The way the church is supposed to work is that we each make up the deficiencies for each other. So I'm, I'm, the, I'm the reformer, right? I'm a reformer. There's more than me, more than one reformer in this room. I'm a reformer. Part of what I do is drag you to the places you don't want to go, right? And say, this is important. We need to deal with this. That's part of my job. Now, I can be a steamroller in that effort and just roll over people because we're doing it. I don't care what, I don't care what the fallout is. This needs to happen and this needs to happen now. Someone who is more geared towards grace and mercy has to come alongside and they have to soften my hard edges. Now, if I, if I fall into the unhealthy side of my perfectionism, then now you don't even want to be around me because you'll never measure up. And every time you're around me, I'll let you know you're not measuring up. Now, you can be confident that a one says that about themselves a lot more than they say about anybody else. But now a person with a spiritual gift of discernment getting more towards Gene's point, a person with a gift of discernment says, yeah, there's something more to this here that we need to step in and deal with because they're headed down a path of destruction. Now, this is where all the gifts should come alongside. Grace and mercy should be there to encourage and to help. The gift of prophecy. Listen, you know this is not good. This is not what God wants for you, right? Those who are long-suffering to say, I'm going to walk through this with you because that's a gift. That's actually a gift to be long-suffering because a lot of us were like, we'll have a conversation with you, and if it doesn't work, that's it. I'm giving you one conversation, it's over. And so all of us then come together, and all of the, each, in the, each of the areas that we're weak, we fill in the gap for each other, and we operate as a whole. And the reason I say that that's different than the way most churches operate is because for the most part, we're all operating individualistic in church today. We come, we do our thing, I might serve here, I might do something there, but I don't really feel like I am responsible for anyone or that they're responsible for me. I don't even want anybody to be responsible for me. I want to do my own thing. But that's not the picture of the church as given by Jesus or the early apostles, where we are supposed to be um, united, which honestly is what the rest of these verses that I wanted to cover, but we're not going to get to them today. We'll get to those, uh, well, not next week, we'll be at the part, but the following week, we'll pick up on the next section where he then goes on to, to actually kind of speak to this issue of talking about loving versus hating our brothers, which is talking about other believers. Um, but also that the gospel has come not just to the Jews, but they've come to all people, the whole world, which is not just, uh, that doesn't mean, that's not a universalistic gospel that says that Jesus died on the cross and now everybody, whether they want to or not, are forgiven or are going to spend eternity with God in heaven. But instead is saying that the gospel is not just for the Jews because God had only been for the Jews for the most part up to that moment. But the gospel was for the Jews, the Gentiles, for all the rest of the world, for all who would choose to follow and believe. So we'll get to that stuff, but I, we're going to stop with that. And that's, not, that's really not a great place to stop. But uh, let me see if I want to do anything else. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let me leave you with this. A couple of things. Rhetorical question. I was actually going to have you all chat about this amongst yourselves, but I want you to think about this this week. How has knowing God through Christ changed you? Now, there are some testimonies out there that are so magnificent that you're like, wow, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian after listening to that. I mean, they're just so magnificent. That's not what I'm talking about. Nor is it a competition. How has God changed you? When you begin to see God has changed you, for me, that is one of the most encouraging moments in my walk with Christ. I recognize something has changed. God is actually working in me. How has God changed you? 
if you look through your life and you're no different now than when you came to a place of repentance and asking Christ to be your Savior, something's wrong. We move at different paces. We have different seasons in our life in which some seasons God is just like, I mean, I just feel like, you know, it's like having a growth spurt when you're, you know, a kid. I just feel like, man, I'm just growing. I don't even think I can really comprehend all that's happening in me right now. Other times can feel really dry. And like, I'm, gosh, I just don't, I'm sure God's saying anything to me right now. I, the point is not that there's some arbitrary scale as to whether you're a good Christian or not. But how has knowing God through Christ changed you? And if you struggle with that question, that probably means you don't think about these things. And you should. Because one of the most encouraging things is to see where you've come from. And if you're the kind of person like me who looks at how far you have to go, that can be discouraging. But if you look at how far you've come, that can be encouraging and can actually fuel greater change within your life. So how has that changed? And I would also just come back to this conversation about calling people out in their sin. Let us remember that what John is saying is that we have an advocate in Christ who is on our side. And his purpose is not to lead us to the place of shame. Sin does that on its own. His purpose is to lead us out of that. And as we have the opportunity to invest in others and see the mistakes others made, let us remember Christ is their advocate as well. And it is not our place to tell them, you're not doing this as good as I am. But instead, continue to go to Christ. These are good conversations and harder questions. And we need to pick those up another time. Because I don't think we did really justice for that today. But good thoughts and commentary all the way around today. Okay, we're going to finish. Because I think you're probably getting hungry and getting tired. And... Ken gave me a hard time last week because I said, we're going to finish this chapter up. He's like, man, we should just hang out here until we're done. So um, if we do that, quite honestly, we'll never finish. We'll be in the the epistles of John for the next 10 years. Um, And there's lots more places to go. But we are going to stop and pick up the rest uh, in two weeks. Next week, we'll be at the park with uh, Chad and Leslie from 1040 Connections. All right. Any last thoughts or parting thoughts or questions before we bail? Mark? Yeah, he's talking about your own. Exactly. And if we get to the point where we're starting to come up with some kind of litmus test, mm-hmm. human nature is going to be to stop looking at yourself and then look around at other people and point fingers, and that's not what we're doing. Right, yes. Very much so. The conversation about sin is... And he, this is how Jesus handled it. When somebody came up and said, they're doing something wrong, Jesus generally, would, his response was, well, what about you? What's going on in your heart? And that's an uncomfortable place for many people, too, that more easily fall in the place of, I don't want to worry about my sin. I, I want to worry about theirs. Um, that's not the way Jesus, so great final thought. Thanks, Mark. Okay, yeah. Renee, is it quick? I can make it quick. Yes, make it quick. Okay. Um, okay, I'm going to make it quick. So I think that um, there's a difference between judging someone and holding someone accountable, and I think that you can... Only really hold someone accountable, like have a conversation with them if you have a history of encouragement. Because I don't know about you, but if someone always tells me that I'm a piece of crap, and then they come around and say, well, I love you, so I'm going to tell you, you need to stop doing this. I'm not going to listen to anything they have to say to me. Right. I mean. That's a great point. Accountability, that is a, that is a, actually that is a great point, Renee. Accountability is not received unless you've built a relationship with them before. That's great. That's a great point. Great wisdom. That's great wisdom. <laughs> Our teenagers come up with some great stuff, don't they? They do. Um, okay, let's pray. And we've got one more song, and, uh, and then pick up your kids right after, because I'm in big trouble. I'm in big trouble. <laughs> and uh, Father, thank you that your grace is so overwhelming that we can still mess up and have a place with you. 
Thank you for your love and encouragement of a body of believers that can help us walk this path even when we do it imperfectly. Thank you for uh, just reminding us through John and through others that you are our advocate. You are for us. You are on our side. And you are calling to that place of integrity in which we are whole and we are complete. I pray for all of us within this room that have succumbed to the temptation to say sin is not that big a deal, to recognize how damaging it is within our lives. I also do pray for wisdom and discernment whenever we begin creating in our own mind what are better and worse sins. I pray that you would convict us of our sins. Let them be ever present in our minds so that we can confess and we can repent or turn away from them. And give us the strength to do just that. Not to continue in something that is, feels good and is comfortable because that is often what sin feels like. But instead that we can remember that you've called us to something greater and help us to live that out fully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.